there's confusion for you. All eyes on Graham Paul. Simunic, I'm certain, was yellow carded earlier on. And Graham Paul has forgotten about it. Oh, and Siemens has been beaten. It's a goal. It's Ronaldinho. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Hello and welcome to episode two of Got Got Need, a World Cup podcast. I'm Chris Robinson, his name is Liam Baxter and today we are going back 10 years to the summer of 2010 to Soccer City to look at the World Cup final between Spain and the Netherlands. My boo in Africa Sing loud, sing to the people. Let them give us something to the world. A great Brazilian team. Doubt, it's there. They're ahead. Schneider. A Dutch have come from behind. Again, he's uh, eager to get up there in support. The fear with wonderful footwork is beaten too, and a wonderful goal. Bobble short, reckless from Van Bommel, but play goes on. Snyder, Zou, Van Bronckhorst. Well, he's gone from range and he's found an absolute beauty. Stunning goal by the Dutch captain Gio Van Bronckhorst. So yeah, 2010, uh, an interesting year in the world, and uh, we're talking about Spain versus the Netherlands, and uh, I'm joined as always by Liam, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad mate, how are yourself? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad, Um, you know, still enjoying in close quotes, uh, coronavirus lockdown, but you know. <laughs> yeah, the old uh, the old government government mandated house arrest, but oh yeah, yeah, can't knock it. So, um, if you haven't listened to the first episode, um, Italy at Italia ninety, we highly recommend you go and check it out. Um, we're also all over social media now, so go and search for our name, and you should be able to find us on uh, uh, Twitter and Instagram and. And Facebook as well, so give us a follow. Yeah, we are um, on Twitter. We are got got at got got need pod. So um, the 2010 World Cup final. Why are we doing this? Um, well, I just really wanted to re-listen to that Vuvuzela sound. I think. That was probably... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would. Uh, that's the number one reason, wasn't it? I think. <laughs> that's the absolute worst thing about that entire World Cup. I absolutely like. I completely forgot how much I hated that thing. It's like a swarm of bees. Just oh, it, it it permeates every single second of that tournament. It's yeah, it's it's unique. I mm. I hated it. Um, and in, ter- in terms of think like it, memories of that World Cup, like that was the first uh, the first World Cup, the first summer for me where I could actually go out and drink and enjoy games in the pub properly. Um, mm. But whenever I think of it, I just hear that sound, the constant whirring. I I remember um, after this World Cup. Um, loads of football grounds around the UK banned them because they thought loads of people were going to sort of bring them in and create atmosphere and nobody liked it. I remember, um, 
yeah, read uh, watching Sky Sports News and you know it was you know West Ham have banned Vizelas, don't bring them, you know. And you had like some clubs doing branded ones, you know. Oh, let, let's you know it was like the popular thing. It was like you know the Icelandic thunderclap that everyone copied after that Euros. The Vuvuzela was the the thing that you know everyone was worried people were going to bring into stadiums, so yeah, loads no. of clubs banned them. Definitely, let's, let's definitely not do that. Never. <laughs> if I never have to hear that sound again, I'll be more than happy. Yeah, I mean, one of the other um, interesting things uh, for me, like you know, from watching this game and you know, watching just other bits from from this World Cup is is the ball, the Jabulani, uh, um, sort of was its own character almost in this world cup because it was a weird weird football yeah so i don't i don't ever remember any other i don't know tournament ball receiving like such criticism i suppose because mm. it, it like you say it became its own kind of it became its own character it was essentially like i think that goalkeepers and defenders and stuff just absolutely hated it i've got a quote here from julio cesar the brazil keeper of that tournament that compared it to a supermarket ball um essentially like a penny floater or a shoot five one of the one that goes boom like when you hit it and it swerves off yeah all over the place um and just said that it sort of favored strikers and then i think casillas and buffon both came out and said something similar i think buffon was the, the guy that said it's a shame that such an important tournament was played with such a horrible ball and it just used to like knuckle uncontrollably all over the place. And I think that's mm. one of the key things I remember from the tournament is that I I have this memory of it being judged, like just a, a rubbish World Cup, but filled with absolute worldies. Um, yeah. Like fired, like speculative shots fired from like 40 yards out that just seemed to nestle in the top corner. <laughs> I had a Jabulani and um, it was as crazy as you, as it looked on the telly. It was mm. weird. Yeah, I remember. I remember having one because I, I was in my final year of university when, when this this was on, and I I remember going out to you know one of the um, sort of like open field sort of you know parks or whatever in, in Bournemouth, and you know we we just got this ball from JJB or whatever it was, and you know leathered it and it ends up in Christchurch. It would do some crazy stuff. It would do some crazy stuff. No, it was just a. It was just, yeah. Like I said, I don't ever remember another another ball of any tournament whether it was the um the oh, the, the south korea japan one that sort of gold shiny one mm. no, no no other ball received so much publicity as the the jabulani no and it's almost like one of those things that you can say to most football fans you can say the word jabulani and they'll know what it means what it did what it was you know like i said it, is, it was like it's almost, almost its own character it was yeah weird. yeah have you got like do you have any sort of key memories from that summer um like what, being what, what my final year of university and working on my dissertation and hating every waking second of it <laughs> um i i remember i well one of the reasons why I, I was particularly interested in doing in doing this as as a podcast was that that dutch team was just incredible i loved it yeah no i, I de- definitely yeah i agree with you there van persie schneider robin even like like stecklenberg was like a rock between the posts so yeah yeah, I think I think that was the, the the key thing for me was you know people you know watch World Cups because they want to watch their own own nation and everything. But if you are a general football fan, um, you get to watch you know all these great teams doing bits on the telly all day. Um, yeah, and that one of the sort of overriding memories from this whole thing was 
you know, these bright orange shirts and, and just some incredible football and, and incredible goals and, you know, a fair few that, that we'll talk about uh, as we as we get on. Yeah, no, I think like rewatching to set the scene, I sort of rewatched that we decided together to rewatch the 2010 final. Um, and I rewatched it on, on Saturday night when, I mean, both of us really, we should have been in Prague for my stag do, mm. but instead I was sort of nestled down under a blanket on the on the couch watching the 2010 World Cup final while my partner put High School Musical on. So Yeah, cheers, <laughs> coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. We we're literally um, supposed to be at a Prague derby and instead we're watching highlights from a 10-year-old World Cup. But like, I, I really wanted to see the Dutch sort of win that final not just because it was sort of their third time trying but like Hmm. I mean even knowing the scoreline going in I was sort of like making phantom headers at the laptop screen and sort of yeah groaning at missed Dutch chances because like I've kind of been like a huge fan of Dutch football since about Euro 2000 I think because when Hmm. one of my earliest memories of football is my uncle sitting down with me to watch um, I think it was the Netherlands against the Czech Republic and mm. he was a massive Rangers fan. So he he loved Van Bronckhorst and Rangers seem to have a string of Dutch players like Arthur Newman, Fernando Rixon. Um, mm. I think both De Boers played for Rangers at one point. And yeah, he was just like, okay, look, we'll, we'll sit down. We're going to watch this game and you're going to see exactly why Dutch football was great. Yeah, and yeah. that was kind of ever since then, I've kept an eye on the Dutch team and wanting them to do well. So now I've really wanted to see the Dutch win this one. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, no matter what the squad is, no matter you know whether it's a good squad or a bad squad, they, you know, people are always interested in watching the the Dutch because of this unique way that they approach football, the way that they play it, you know, the um, the sort of approach to it that they inherited from from Cruyff and even before that, you know, the um, you know total football and all of that sort of stuff. There there is a, a unique way in which they that they approach the game, and then with Spain, I think. Um, they they were always really frustrating in major tournaments because they they were they they would always go into tournaments with great sides but then you know great squads but then never it never really connected for them so i mean one of the things that we looked to do for for this podcast was sort of um you looked at spain and i looked at the netherlands in in detail so why don't you give us an overview on sort of the the spain squad and and the shape that they're in going into all of this yeah so the spanish i mean the spanish are in great shape because this is this is kind of the middle of their domination they obviously they win euro 2008 um torres scores in a one nil win over germany in the final they then with spoiler alert they go on to win the world cup in 2010 and then they also win mm-hmm. sort of three tournaments in a row beating italy in the final of euro 2012 and this spanish squad it kind of it brings together the best players all of the best players from La Liga essentially bar sort of Messi mm-hmm. and Ronaldo with a few from the Premier League as well. The starting 11 in the final, you've got seven from Barcelona, three from Real Madrid, and then um, sort of the out, outlier is one, Captavia from Real, the sort of left back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Spanish squad is quite, um, it kind of shows how international football can, like with, with international football, there's no transfer market, right? So you can't go out and you can't buy your kind of perfect left winger or your mm-hmm. right winger to fit the system. You're kind of at the mercy of whatever players are being produced by the club sides, either in your nation or around the world. So um, this World Cup kind of landed directly in the sweet spot for Spain because they've got Barcelona dominating club football, which makes up the spine of that team. Yeah, um, You've got Xavi, Iniesta, PK kind of running down the centre. And um, I think that that summer they'd bought David Villa as well. So the entire Spain, um, Sp- Spanish spine, aside from Casillas, 
is all Barcelona and then you just complement it nicely with some of the best from I guess Real Madrid and Villarreal um, but then in contrast you take the World Cup in 2014 when the Spanish essentially bought Diego Costa not quite but he's kind yeah. of he's signed from Brazil because he's had a few caps there but he wasn't used to playing in that side with the rest of the Spanish players and they've not actually won anything with him playing up top so it's a side that plays sort of engaging, eye-catching football throughout the tournament. And yeah, despite it being such a high-pressure environment, which makes it quite hard to do. So yeah, I just think that it, it this this Spanish squad, it was like the right players, the right time and the right manager as well. Yeah, so they had um, Vicente Del Bosque in charge. Yeah, so he takes over from... So it's Luis, uh, Luis Aragonés who wins Euro 2008. And mm. Spain had this kind of habit of being like perennial underachievers, kind of falling at the quarterfinal mm. hurdle in tournament after tournament. And it's because of this kind of fast and frantic style they used to play that they just knack themselves out, it seemed. Um, and so just before Euro 2008, Aragonés decides to turn this, turn this around and go from playing like this fast, frantic, high-energy football to a measured and controlled passing style, just using the technically gifted players that they've got. Yeah. And that kind of sets the stage for someone like Del Bosque to come in and build on that foundation. He didn't change too much going into 2010. He just tweaked a few things, brought in a few players, but kept the majority of the squad together. And there's no real fear for Del Bosque as not being capable of doing, like of being able to co coax performances out of these superstars because he, I mean, he was the guy that babysat all the Galacticos of Real Madrid between, I guess, it, I think it was 99 and 2000. He mm -hmm. won two La Ligas. Um, and two Champions Leagues. So it's kind of the right man for the job. It's really interesting as well, because normally a new manager would come in and they would try to sort of stamp their authority on it, their own style, their own players, their own sort of favoured, you know, people and approach and everything. So to have that sort of um, like long-term thinking almost to sit there and go, hang on, something, we've got something good here. Let's Let's continue what was good and, you know, uh, and build on that. I think, I think that's, says a lot about him as a manager as well it's, ma it's massively to his credit because the only kind of the main injection of youth in the tournament it just comes in the form of I guess Gerard Piquet and then Sergio Busquets as well but mm. you wouldn't think of them in this tournament anyway as as young players because they're both two-time Champions League winners by that point um, <laughs> Busquets takes over the role for Marcus Senna in the Euros the, the sort of two mm. summers before and not much not much else changes so they're they're kind of the perfect two players to slot into that 11 mm, interesting yeah so were there any sort of um particularly interesting stats that you sort of dug out about this team in the tournament in general or like this you know the squad that they went into the tournament with i think aside from the fact that this is kind of the this is the midst of their sort of three team uh, three tournament winning streak mm. there is a slight similarity to something that we spoke about last week so last on the last episode, we spoke about the relationship between Naples and, it, and the rest of Italy. Um, mm. There's a similar relationship between the people of Barcelona and the Spanish national team, I guess, because many mm. Catalonians don't consider themselves to be Spanish or are just at best indifferent towards the national team. So to have that national team, the majority of the players, the spine made up of, team, uh, of players from Barcelona, that must have been pretty strange for them. And then like especially with Iniesta scoring the winner in the final as well I think you, it'd be quite a strange time to be a Catalonian Republican I guess <laughs> to, to want yeah. to break away 
I suppose for the first time in many years, they're, they're probably the best represented in a, a squad um, for for a long time. Yeah, and I think I wonder if you if you're a Real Madrid fan at that point, do you? I mean, would you care if a Barcelona player won the final? I think I don't think I can't I imagine I would, would personally, but yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I'm a Portsmouth fan, and if a Southampton player scored the goal that won England a World Cup, I think I could gloss over it, you know? I think you'd be just fine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I would uh, be muting my celebrations just because, oh, it's Ryan Bertrand or whatever. You know, I don't think I'd be that bothered. <laughs> yeah, or Charlie Austin, you know, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Less said about him, the better. Um, yeah, so what did you... Because so you took the Netherlands, right? So I did, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean... Coming into the the tournament, you've got you know Wesley Snyder had just won the Champions League with Inter, their treble winning, um, you know, team. Uh, it was Giovanni van Bronckhorst's last tournament. Um, you know, I mean, the World Cup final was his last ever game of professional football as well, and I think that sort of mentality is really interesting. When you know that, when you watch the game, you understand. You know, because he really, really fights and works hard in this tournament, and he he gives it everything. It's like everything that he's got left in the tank, he 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 gives, and you can really see that. Um, you know, there's just some really interesting sort of names in the squad as well. You've got a you know a 23 year old Ryan Barbel, a 24 year old Ibrahim Afalai, you know the former PSV, Barcelona and Stoke City. Yeah, player, he seemed to is... bounce around a bit with a bit of a weird career trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, always looked like he had the tools, but then ended up on a cold, wet Tuesday night in Stoke. Yeah, nine of the players played in Holland, one in Spain, being Rafael van der Vaart at um, Real Madrid. Um, there was five. So in he England. was still there at that point. Okay. He was, yeah, yeah. So that's the one thing that this is something that I had in the back of my head that hmm. I remember around that time, sort of two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, Real Madrid were sort of littered with like Dutch stars that they then just had this massive fire sale and got rid of everyone. Yeah. And I always thought it was a bit weird. And so I tried to figure out why. And I went back and I sort of read a couple of articles and there was an, as an interview um, with Ruud van Nistelrooy from around that time who, okay. um, he just says, I think the, the the headline from the article was just along the lines of like everyone, every, every Dutch star needs to leave Real Madrid, but me. Um, and I, I thought it was a bit of a weird oh, headline wow. so I read why and it's because he's sort of at that point he's coming back from injury he doesn't know what the, what Real Madrid want to do with him mm. but you've got Robin Schneider Huntelaar and Van der Vaart are all sold off around that time to fund the purchases of Ronaldo and Kaká so obviously Robin leaves oh. for Bayern Schneider for Inter Huntelaar I think he goes to AC Milan and then you've got Van der Vaart yes. I think if he's at Real Madrid at the, during the final it must be only a few weeks later he goes to Tottenham yeah, and I I loved him. I thought he he's a fantastic player. He was criminally underrated at, at, at Tottenham, and, and yeah. he was really really good in um, at Real Madrid as well, and and great in this Dutch squad. Um, I always say yeah. that I think he'd be if I was to ha- if you could have anyone back in the Premier League now, I think Van der Vaart would be one of the players I would probably choose because I used to yeah. I used to love watching him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they had um yeah five five first teamers playing in uh England, another five in Germany. So they were quite sort of spread out. See the bulk of players playing in Holland, you know, most at um Ajax, Feyenoord, PSV. Um yeah, Van der Vaart being the only one playing in Spain. Um but yeah, yeah, it was it's an interesting sort of balance in I think um you know, yes, the Dutch have their unique way of playing, but 
um, to have so many players in sort of different countries, you, you would think that they would, you know, like Dirk Cout and Ryan Babel were at Liverpool, you know, bringing sort of different elements of football culture together. Yeah, so yeah, you sort of get you get a bit from everywhere then, don't you? Mm. Yeah, and they had uh, Bert van Marwijk in, in charge, who was a former Feyenoord and Dortmund manager, and he had Frank de Boer as his number two um, for this World Cup. Um, I think he did pretty well with the the Dutch um, side. Unfortunately, it ended um, pretty badly for him in 2012. I mean, they had a really, really terrible Euros, and he resigned after that. They got in the group, then, did they? I don't think they won a game, did they? Oh, God. I can't. I yeah. can't remember. I can't remember. You know, hundred percent what happens, but but yeah, he, they they have a, a particularly bad showing at, at the Euros in 2012. After you know, you know, some some players retire, some people are injured, whatever, and and it he he reti- he um, resigns after that. It's quite a mix, like a, a an imbalanced squad as well, I suppose, with the Dutch. So yeah, I suppose like a lot mm. of credit does go to the manager because when you, you you work the you work your way back, you obviously got a front three. Of Cout, Robin, yeah, Van Persie. Then you've got Schneider in midfield with De Jong, and who was it that played? Oh, Van Bommel. Mark Van Bommel, yeah. But then when you get to the back, it's like Joris Matthijsson and John Heitinger, yeah, who was at Everton at that time. I didn't know. Oh, that. was he? It yeah. was. It was only when I was watching the game back, and um, I think it was Martin Tyler on the commentary was saying, "Oh, you know, mm-hmm. Everton's Johnny Heitinger." I was like, my sort of initial memories of John Heitinger was that he was, you know, he had you know about a billion ricks in him you know he was was terrible yeah but in this game and from when you watch all of the highlights of you know the dutch highlights of the tournament he was pretty good Um, yeah so he he cleared he cleared a few spanish shots and stuff so i didn't i didn't pinpoint him as like a weak link or anything at the time but it's just i just feel like the defense is nowhere near as strong as their attack no which i think carries on into 2014 as well if we ever i don't know whether we'll cover that at some point but their defense wasn't great then either yeah and you know when like I said, you know, the the World Cup final was Giovanni van Bronckhorst's last ever game. He was the Dutch captain at that at that uh time. After he retires, the captaincy goes to Mark van Bommel. And whether it's that he just doesn't have the legs anymore or, you know, doesn't have quite the commanding presence that Van Bronckhorst did, but you know, that may be part of the uh, the reason why their their Euros campaign in two years' time um was so poor. Yeah, you 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 lose a leader like Van Bronckhorst, so you're, you're going to feel it in the side. <laughs> yeah, um, really interesting. I looked at some of the stats from from the 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 game in general, um, and it was really interesting looking that you know the the Netherlands they committed ten more fouls than than Spain. They had more offsides, more bookings, less possession, and shots. When you watch the game, it kind of it feels a bit more even than that, but the stats sort of show otherwise. Yeah, um, it looks like the stats are lying, but <laughs> they never do. So looking at the the route to the final, um, who did Spain have in the group stage? So Spain Spain started in Group uh, H with uh, alongside Switzerland, Honduras, and Chile. And in the in their first game, they actually they lose one 0 to Switzerland. I'd I'd gone back and I've watched all the sort of the highlight mm. packs from each game, and. This, I mean, the Spanish, that they played well against the Swiss and it was just a, a, a ball gets knocked around the six-yard box and it comes to Aaron Derdiok, who's tackled, to, tackled by Iker Casillas. The mm. ball ricochets around and it falls to 
Gelson Marti- uh, Gelson Fernandez of Manchester City, and he sort of toe pokes wow. it in. Um, that's a throwback. So at this point, you, they lose their opening game to Switzerland, and then that's when sort of Del Bosque is kind of faced with like, I mean, they've come into the tournament on the back of plenty of wins. Their confidence is sky high. They lose their first game, and it's now like, do you stick or twist? Do you switch mm. it up, or do you stick with the methods that sort of get you to the tournament? Um, I guess with the ability of hindsight, it's easy to say, of course you stick with your game plan. It's just a one-nil loss. You played well, you know. Keep going, keep stay the course. Mm. But coming in as World Cup favourites and then losing your opening game, which usually means it's quite difficult to get out of the group, they've still got to face a decent chilly side and a robust Honduras, I guess you could call them. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So it takes a really strong character and a strong man to stick with the game plan and say, look, we played well. If we play that match 10 times, we win nine. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what they did. But do you know, um, have you ever heard the story of like who the Spanish fans actually blamed the loss on? No. So a lot of Spanish fans actually blamed the loss on a woman called Sara Carbonaro, who is uh, Ike Casillas' partner at the time. So she's working right. for Spanish television station Telecinco. Um, and she was actually filming segments behind their Spanish goal before kickoff, whilst Casillas right. is warming up. Um, and a lot of Spaniards back home blamed her presence for the loss and that her being in South Africa was actually destabilizing the rest of the team. So, I mean... Wow, okay. Yeah, charming. <laughs> Um, but then after the, the Switzerland loss, um, everything sort of everything turns on its head. You've at that point, you're all of the Spanish squad, uh, squad are faced with just knockout game after knockout game. They lose another game, mm. they're, they're out. Um, but it all kind of goes plain sailing after that. You've got the two 0 win over Honduras in the second game. Uh, David Villa scores twice just to sort of settle the Spanish nerves, and it's it's pretty routine to be honest. There's not too much mm. to say about that game. And then the final game in the group, they need to beat Chile who they, I think the Spanish take a 2-1 lead over Chile in the final group game. And I think the Spanish kind of expected the Chileans to kind of come on and push for an equaliser. But mm-hmm. I think the Chileans know that a 2-1 loss for them is fine. And they just kind of sit on that. And the game ends 2-1 and all is well. They basically, they, 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 finish, they finish in top spot, Chile in second, um, Switzerland, despite winning the opening game against Spain, go out in third place and then Honduras rock bottom. It's kind of harsh on the Swiss. Yeah, definitely. You go in, you you face the pre-tournament favourites in your first game, and you win. You expect to go through, but yeah, was not to be. So, who did they draw in the round of sixteen? Uh, so this is Cristiano Ronaldo's Portugal. Um, D hell. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think the Portuguese were criticised quite heavily for not going for it in their final game of the group against Brazil because I think they mm. they had Brazil, North Korea, and Ivory Coast. And they've gone into the last game against Brazil knowing that sort of a win will put them top. Um, yeah. They they know that Ivory Coast are going to beat North Korea in the final game. Mm. And they, they both just settle for a nil-nil draw. Um, and that game, uh, the game against, it sets up a game against the Spanish. Um, and Spain kind of, they tow this really narrow line between consistently sort of, it's like nail-biting tension and controlling the game where you never really doubt the result because it's just three consecutive 1-0 wins in the knockout round. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when you've got, after their opening game loss, every game is literally just a knockout for them because they, they have to mm. beat Honduras to make sure they get through. They then have to beat Chile. Then they have to come through Portugal, quarterfinal against Paraguay, and then a semifinal against Germany. Um, but, yeah, they, they kind of tow this line 
making sure, I mean, the scores are all 1-0, but at, not, at, at no point during any of the games, really, do you feel like they're under any trouble? It's quite fine yeah. margins, though. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I can't... You would imagine um, that drawing Paraguay in the in the quarterfinal, you could almost breathe a slight sigh of relief. That I, think, it's, it's, I think that's it's what a most people easier thought. Game. Yeah, because I think by that point, um, you've got Italy, France, England, Argentina, they're all gone. So by that point, I think the that, that side of the draw, I mean, play, facing Portugal and Germany on that side of the draw is not the easiest way to go. But a, a, a quarterfinal against Paraguay, you'd expect the Spanish to hmm. to walk it. But it's not as easy as, it's really not as easy as it looks, despite what I just said. So I think the Paraguayans have a goal ruled out for offside in the first half. They then miss a penalty in the second. But and Jabi Alonso misses a penalty as well for Spain, saved after a retake. But then towards the end of the game, David Villa puts the ball in the back of the net off the post um, after Pedro himself hits the post just seconds before. So again, it's just another 1-0 win, yeah. grind out a clean sheet and move on to the next round. And you've- See, well, I remember the semi-final because um, this was the one where I thought, you know, if, if they're going to sort of fall, it's going to be the classic Spanish thing of getting, you know, quarterfinal, semi-final, whatever, and, and then and then losing it. Yeah. I see. I think that's what the rest of the Spanish population thought as well mm. would be that they'd come up against against Germany, efficient, and they'd just get knocked out. Um, yeah. But no, you've got an like a, a complete bullet header from uh, Carlos Puyol, and it puts the Spanish one up. And then, like I say, it was just three consecutive one nils, bang, bang, bang. Um, straight Job done. through to the final. Yeah. Cool. How about the Dutch? How did they get on in the group? So they were in a group with Denmark, Japan, and Cameroon which on paper sounds pretty doable. Mm-hmm. Um, the first game was against Denmark. It was a pretty regulation 2-0 win. Uh, the f- their first goal of the tournament was actually an own goal by the Danish. Um, and then Eliero, Elia... Um, a player that completely second. passed me by until he came on as a sub in the final. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he was an, he was one of those ones where everyone was like, well, you know, he's so hotly tipped. He's he's going to be the next superstar. And it was his it pace, I think, wasn't it? It just didn't connect for him. It just didn't work out. Because um, I remember he popped up um, popped up a loan spell for Southampton, I think, for yeah. six months, something like that. And yeah, he had sort of frightening pace, but then never never completed the move permanently and drifted off to something else now. Yeah, I think it was that sort of almost like lack of end product. Um, so he scored yeah, against Denmark, did he? He, he did, yeah. Um, so that was a, a 2-0 win. Um, the next game against Japan, um, yeah, they won 1-0. It was a Schneider goal from outside the box. Um, when you watch the goal, it's one of those ones where you see what the Jabulani can do. Like, if you... If you hit it sweetly enough, it just sort of it doesn't spin in the air. It just sort of stays still, but moves knuckles crazy. around in the air. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know that's three goals in two games, two clean sheets. Nice job. Um, the third game against Cameroon, um, Samuel Eto's Cameroon as well. Um, <laughs> Lest we not forget. Yeah, uh, it was a 2-1 win, so yeah, another win, uh, only conceding one goal in the group, not bad. The first goal, um, Robin Van Persie through the keeper's legs, really, really nice. Um, the Cameroon team get a goal back to draw it one all. Um, they get a penalty after... So, 
there's a a Cameroon free kick. Um, the Dutch wall jumps. The ball hits Rafael van der Vaart's hand. Referee gives a free kick. Uh, gives a penalty. Uh, Sammy Leto takes it and scores. So it's it's one all right till right till near the end of the game, and then Klaas Jan Huntelaar on the 83rd minute um, gets the goal to win it two one, uh, and they go through in the round of 16 against Slovakia. Which again is another one of those games where you look at it on paper and you go, yeah, okay, regulation, no problem. Um, so the first goal is one of those. But um, they just I'll, put I'll Italy s- out, hadn't they? So I think at that yeah. point you're maybe questioning. Like I say you look at Slovakia on paper, you're like, yeah, that should be fine. Yeah. But yeah. in the context of the tournament, they've just, I think they're the one that's, that they beat Italy in the group. So. Well, yeah, I mean they. I mean they put in a decent enough performance. Um, unfortunately. Iron Robin did that classic thing that he does, and I'll say it time and time again as we go through this, you know, where he gets the ball and he cuts in and then has a shot and yeah, he Robined it. Yeah, yeah, he scored and it's one nil um, to the Dutch. Um, the second goal is a really nice sort of worked piece of play where Dirk Kite cuts uh, the ball across for Wesley Schneider to to hammer it in. Um, so it's two nil. Um, and then right towards the end of the game, Slovakia get a penalty. Um, they put that away, but the game finishes 2-1. Um, so, you know, fairly smooth sailing to the, the quarterfinal. And then they draw Brazil. And this is the one where I sat there and I was like, okay, so this is the one that they go out then because, you know, it's Brazil. Brazil always win World Cups, you know. Um, it's a strong Brazil is- side as well, isn't it? I think, like, yeah. from what I remember, there must have been, Kaká's definitely in there. You've got yep. Robinho in there. Yep. Uh, Adriano, Luis Fabiano. Um, I can't remember entirely. Um, yeah, it's quite a strong Brazil side, though. Yeah, it's it's not the worst, but it, I wouldn't say it's as good as two thousand and two. But it's it's no. still got some you know big big players in there, and I think you know you've got Julio Cesar's in there, Felipe Melo's in there, so you've got some some players that are playing for you know big European clubs, you know you know big clubs in the world. Um, yeah, that are you know at the top of their game and everything. Um, I mean, this game is anything but regulation. Uh, Rubinho opens the scoring after 10 minutes. Um, Kaká almost has another to make it 2-0 to Brazil. But it was quite a good save from um, Stecklenburg. Just sort of tips it over the bar. Um, Then Wesley Schneider scores to make it Um, it 1-0. It's one of those weird ones where... Again, it's it's the Jabulani doing stuff. So it looks like a cross. So Schneider sort of puts the, the, the ball into the box, obviously hoping that someone will get the end on, of it. Um, it goes off the head of the defender. So it's one of those classic situations where the goalkeeper comes out and the defender's going to head it as well and the goalkeeper's going for it at the same time. So it bounces off the, the defender's head. Cesar is completely sort of cut out of it he's totally confused and the ball goes in the net um it's just poor communication between him and his defense um the second goal for the dutch to make it 2-1 is Wesley schneider again uh it's from a corner ball gets whipped into the box um schneider loses his marker clean header you know straight off the bounce and in um <laughs> The the actually the most interesting thing for me that happens in this game is that Felipe Melo gets um, a red card. Um, so Robin's got the ball. 
Mello sort of, you know, gets really close to him, sort of push, uses his sort of strength to, to push Robin to the floor and then rakes his studs oh. down the back of um, his hamstring. And, um, you know, Iron Robin is quite rightfully um, on the floor in a fair bit of pain. And, and the referee, I think he's on a, a yellow anyway, and the referee just, just books him and, and sends him off. So, but it was really nasty. It was a really sort of vicious um, sort of raking of... When you watch it again in slow motion, it, it looks even worse. Very fitting of the player that Mello was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think... Winner of the golden bin in Italy. Yeah, when you look at the... Um, when you look at that Brazil squad, he's one of those weird ones where you're almost like, mm, I get why they've picked him because like, like you were saying earlier about, you know, you know, with international teams, you can't sort of buy someone you have to sort of do the best with yeah. who you've got in certain positions um he's one of those ones where i sit there and you go he doesn't sort of really fit the mold because he's he's a bit of a he's a bit of a bruiser he's a, he's bit a destroyer sort of... really isn't he that's <laughs> yeah. kind of the yeah he's in there just to rough up people rather than yeah i think he just t- takes this one a bit too far i mean fair enough using your strength to sort of knock rob into the floor it wasn't a foul that that element of it wasn't a foul but then raking your studs down the hamstring of the of the guy i mean that could have been pretty serious but you know fortunately robin does get up and you know that they do finish the game um so it finishes 2-1 brazil are out um they then get the semi-final draw against uruguay and this this is a really uh this is a really interesting game this is much should have been ghana of, it should have been yeah yeah, yeah i mean uh, a, a certain uh <laughs> A certain Uruguayan um, current Barcelona player mm. playing handball on the on the line, but um, yeah, I thought Ghana were brilliant in this tournament. Um, oh, just I, outstanding from first to last game. So. They were robbed. Yeah, absolutely robbed. robbed. Um, but you know, Uruguay go through for for better or worse, and they 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 draw the Netherlands, and it's a real sort of um, ding dong. I believe that that they use on Football Manager, <laughs> a ding dong battle, a back yeah. and forth. Definitely, absolutely that. So the first goal is one of those goals that if you were to go onto YouTube and search best ever World Cup goals, this one's on it. It's the Giovanni Van Bronckhorst oh. from about forty-five yards oh. out, leathers it. Jabulani at his absolute finest, <laughs> swerves and goes in the top corner. And Gio Van Bronckhorst at thirty-five years old runs runs around, pumping his arms because he knows that he's probably just hit the best ball of his entire life. It's outstanding finish. Like I don't. It's it, like, it's just another speculative pot shot from anywhere on the pitch that they know yeah. that I guess players around that time that I mean, if I hit it in the direction kind of near the goal, it's probably going top corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, you've got to this sort of stage of the tournament where people are sort of understanding this bizarre aerodynamics of this ball and going, why not? It's like a homing missile. It just seems to always nestle in the right, just out of the goalkeeper's reach. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah, pinpoint. It's bizarre. Um, so that makes it one nil. Um, Diego Forlan makes it uh, one all from outside of the box. Um, it goes over the head of the defender and, and in. Um, Wesley Snyder again with a goal making it 2-1 it's one of these those sort of like low on the floor shots that just sort of manages to go through all of the defenders legs and in um, it's a, it, quite a clever piece of play because he could have got it in the air he could have sort of tried to chip it or something but keeping it on the ground and getting through everyone um, yeah just really really clever Robin makes it 3-1 
to the Dutch. It's uh, Dirk Kite crosses the ball into the box. And um, similar to the goal against um, Schneider's goal against Brazil, it's one of those ones where, you know, you've got the guy in the right place at the right time, gets a really good amount of forehead on it, and it just goes in. Um, and then you, you almost think the game's the game's done, um, but then Uruguay get another goal back towards the end. It's uh, Pereira makes it 3-2. It's another one of those like low shots that cuts through everyone. Um, so near enough similar to, to Schneider's one. Uh, but it's not enough, and it finishes 3-2 to the Dutch, and they're through to the World Cup final against Spain. Van Bronckhorst. Van Bronckhorst. En een schot. En een goed schot. Een schitterend schot. Een fantastisch doelpunt van de aanvoerder van Nederland. Vaak scoort hij niet. Het is pas zijn vijfde in 105 Interland. Maar als hij scoort, dan is het vaak een mooie goal. En dit is een schitterende goal. Ruimte om uit te halen, maar eens proberen en dan vindt hij de verre kruising. Torres in the middle, Fabregas. It slid through, Black stays down, it's in, and he has to score. Surely the winning goal for Spain. And Andres Iniesta. So the World Cup final, 11th of July 2010, it's half past eight at night in the Soccer City Stadium in Johannesburg. You know, this game is uh, nicknamed the Battle of Johannesburg. Uh, yeah, yeah, and rightly so as well. <laughs> it's disgusting I why. amount of fouls in this. Those first 10 minutes are some of the most bizarre minutes of football I think I've ever watched so, because the yeah, tackles... The tackles fly in left and right, and poor old Howard Webb doesn't really have much much chance to catch his breath. You know, he basically walks around with his cards in his hand the whole time. Yeah, within within, I'd I'd even I'd ex- extend it to sort of the first half an hour because it's so. You see Mark Van Bommel just sort of running around, laying reduces in on. Sort of, <laughs> it, he he lands a tackle on both Iniesta and Puyol within the first twenty five minutes. That I'd argue he should be gone already. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think for the first, like the first sort of half an hour, it's so such a spiky like opening thirty minutes, and there's so mm. many niggly fouls. It just looks like it really does look to me like this is two teams that obviously they've never won the tournament before, mm. and it kind of shows because they both look quite nervous. There's so many misplaced passes or sort of overhit passes um, within the first, yeah, sort of first half anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, Van Bronckhorst puts in a challenge on Ramos. Um, Van Bommel has a sliding tackle on Iniesta and gets a booking. Ramos then gets one on Kite and that's no booking. Van Bommel gets one on Puyol and that's the one where you say, you know, quite rightly, it should have gone off. It was just, I think one the most interesting thing for me in the first half was that the first sort of 10, 15 minutes, the traffic is all Spain and all the Dutch can do is just throw in some tackles. Yeah, they're just trying to weather the storm really, it looks like anyway. Yeah. 
and the really smart thing that the um that the spanish did here was just shut robin out he's totally out of the game and the dutch are doing everything they can to try and get the ball to iron robin so that he can do that thing that he does and it just doesn't work you know trying to get it short passes up to him hoofing it long ball from stecklenburg doesn't work doesn't get to him it always seems to run through to the goalie at that point yeah yeah and, and- you know it, it's so obvious from those sort of first 25 minutes first half an hour first half of the game that they're trying to put everything through iron robin and the Spanish just go, fine, shut him down. And then we've shut down your opportunities to do anything in this game. And that's what they do really, really well. Yeah, but between sort of uh, Captivia on the left, Puyol, Pique, and then Casillas, they seem to deal with every single ball through to Robin, either by closing him down quickly, mm-hmm. shepherding it out of play, or you know, it rolls through to Casillas, he picks it up and he switches over to the right. And it's sort of weird to me i think that the first two major chances they both fall to sergio ramos who as the right mm. i guess the right back he's kind of playing right wing back because he ends up gets a decent header off of a um a free kick from the right hand side with five minutes mm. in and then sort of five minutes later he he's on the right hand side of the 18 yard box like doing a step over completely bamboozing dirt out of the game and then firing low across the goal but it's blocked by Heisinger so the first two major chances mm. fall to the Spanish right back yeah I mean I thought that you know that those first few chances that Spain had Heitinger and Matthiasen were you know really sort of resolute very sort of on the ball very you know their concentration had to be super high and it was I think they did really well to just sort of watch the ball make sure that it got away no um, silly mistakes really isn't it first no i th- yeah nothing I think silly he, first 5 minutes <laughs> yeah um and just throughout the f- whole of the first half the dutch seemed happy to just soak up the pressure they didn't get forward very much at all um like you say um sergio ramos is almost playing like another another winger so you see captavia having to sort of almost stay back a little bit to make it almost like a, a another central defender on the left-hand side there. Yeah. Um it's just an incredibly spicy first half an hour with with a lot of bookings, but it does calm down a little bit for the the final 15. Um it's not how, it's not at all how I remember the first half being though. I think we watching mm. this on Saturday night it complete like my memory of the game is obviously just completely wrong because in my head the Iron Robin chance, which we'll go on to mention in the, that happens in the second half, that was in the first five minutes for me. Yeah. In my I think, head anyway, it clearly think, wasn't. So Yeah. I think everyone has an almost, I mean, I certainly did have a like quite a romantic view, like rose tinted view of this final. You know, yeah. when, when we talked about doing this, I was like, oh yeah, that was a great game. <laughs> it really wasn't <laughs> no it definitely it took it took about about well i think we've uh, i've got a note here that you know nigel de Jong's tackle on 20 and 28 minutes is kind of the first major event that happens in the final and that's sort of half an hour in before yeah. that it's just kind of like you say a lot of niggly fouls and cards and you know just i and robin being shut out of the game completely so well on the subject of nigel de Jong, i think that this is probably the worst challenge that we will ever talk about <laughs> In the whole time that we do this podcast, you mean I can't. The one where he tries to wear Xabi Alonso like a slipper, <laughs> <laughs> where he kung fu kicks Xabi Alonso in the chest, straight through the chest. I'm surprised he didn't have like a broken rib cage or something. It was just I when couldn't you watch help it in but burst out speed, into laughter though. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you watch it in full speed, you you go, hang on, something's happened there. What what the hell happened there? You know, it, I, I I saw a foot, and then people bouncing off each other, and then you know, Alonso's on the floor, and then you watch the replay, and even the commentary team say that's disgusting. That should be a red, and he only gets a yellow. Yeah, he's been let off extremely likely there. It's just, it's just so boisterous and irresponsible. Like I, it, it really did make me laugh. And sort of Claire, my partner, she looked at me and was like, "What are you laughing at?" It's <laughs> just like a man just tried to put his foot through another man. Yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting as well to see when after. And this is what made me laugh was afterwards after that challenge. You've got Alonso on the floor. You've got Xavi going over to Nigel De Jong, obviously saying, "What the bloody hell did you do that for?" And he's there with his hands up, like me. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do anything. Oh, he's faking it. And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and the most robust challenge you'll see all tournament, and he's trying to play it off as if it's nothing. And yeah, so the first half closes with more cards than shots on goal, and four straight My matches word. for four straight matches for Spain goalless at halftime in the World Cup. Mm. So there's not a lot to talk about other than some pretty tough challenges and a whole bunch of red uh, yellow cards and what should have been reds yeah howard red was busy to say the least but he could have mm. been busy i suppose yeah because i mean if we think you know honestly about this van bommel should have gone off and nigel de jong should have gone off so the dutch should have been down to nine men yeah i, I could I'd, I'd argue heitinger as well but at the very mm. least they should be down to nine men before the first 45 is over so the second half starts with an early Dutch chance, actually. Um, you know, so Robin hits a through ball, but it's just a bit too quick for Robin van Persie. So immediately you see that the Dutch come out with, you know, a lot more vigour. They've obviously been given a bollocking by uh, by Bert. Big I think Bert. they must know how lucky they are at that point. That's why I think they must come out of the tunnel thinking, right, we should probably be one, if not two down we should also probably be one, if not two men down. So we have been yeah. given a bit of a reprieve here. We can start again. We've still got 11 men on the field. It's still nil-nil. I mean, what what was also really frustrating for me was 49 minutes. So like a couple of minutes, you know, four minutes after the, the restart and Van Bommel takes out Alonso. And it's like, what are you doing? Have yeah, you he's not, not learned, learned his anything? lesson at all, is he? <laughs> Have you not learned anything from the first half? Like, no. calm down. <laughs> You really desperately want to get sent off, don't you? Scything people down left, right and centre. I think the the major sort of certainly like booking incident happens on the 56th minute. Um, John Heitinger takes out David Villa. Um, Howard Webb plays an advantage and basically allows everyone to carry on. David Villa is rolling around on the floor. The Spain squad kick the ball out of play, go up to Howard Webb and protest vigorously and then and then he books Heitinger. Yeah, so they they really didn't let it go. I think that's one of the cases where I suppose if you remonstrate enough with the referee, he's like, unfortunately, he bowed to the pressure there. I'm not saying it wasn't yeah. a yellow, but I think if you're going to play the advantage, you can't really then have your mind changed of whether you're going to book him or not. He yeah, might, have, he might have made his mind up, but it just looked as though he's gone, right, fine, fucking mm. calm down, I'll book him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that was the thing that sort of bothered me was, you know, Howard Webb at the time was, you know, the best referee in England. He was very respected. He was give, being given the big jobs. And to what it looked like on the pitch was he had played the advantage, Spain had kicked off, and then he, you know, went and changed his mind. And it just, it left a bit of a sour taste in the mouth. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Completely agree there. The Dutch get a free kick. Um, Robin takes it, but Heitinger, probably the biggest mistake that Johnny Heitinger makes in this game, he you know, immediately runs offside and it's, it's just a wasted chance. Yeah, for a man that got sent off in the game as well, that's, <laughs> to say that's the biggest mistake he makes, that's really saying yeah. something. <laughs> um, on, on the hour mark, Spain make a change and, and bring um, Pedro off and bring Jesus Navas on, which I think is quite a big turning point in the game because Navas is brilliant from the moment he comes on. He's, he's just got so much pace. Yeah. yeah. He adds so much pace down that side. He almost like he drags the whole team forward because he's like, well, I'm I'm running down this side. I'm going to throw the ball into the box. I'm going to, you know, run down that side and then pass it and cross it and whatever it is that you need. And it almost pulls the entire Spain squad forward and, and adds so much more pressure on the Dutch. I think that's what he was... I, I remember some bits and pieces about from Jesus Navas, either from international tournaments or when he was in the Premier League. The main thing mm. I remember with him was that his pace was frightening and he was able to pull defences all over the place. Mm. But his inability to um, sort of land any kind of cross was what his... It was kind of his downfall. So like he could... I mean, he'd run with the ball, he'd dribble with the ball, he'd get to you know either the byline mm. or the edge of the 18-yard the box and either cross long or it'd go into the goalkeeper's arms or he'd shoot and it would go wayward, which is kind of what happened throughout this game. He was, I think what he was brought on to do was just to sort of scare the back line of the Dutch. Yeah. Was he the player that, if I remember correctly, that suffered really badly with homesickness? Yes, that's why yes, he, he, he wouldn't sort of agree to transfers. He never, he didn't want to leave Seville for ages, mm. for years and years and years. And then he left for Manchester City, but I think he was maybe only there a year or two. Yeah. Um, yeah, he suffered from really severe homesickness. For years, yeah, so. I thought I thought that was him. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, I think uh, after on sixty-two minutes, you probably got the best chance of the game so far. It's, it's Iron Robin is through on goal. He's one-on-one with uh, Casillas. All he's got to do is take it round. You know, take another touch, take it round Casillas, and knock it in. Um, but he he doesn't quite take it round. I mean, he's got he's got pressure from Puyol coming in from behind him. Um, Robin has some sort of speculative shot and Casillas gets the side of his boot on it and it and it goes round and out for a corner. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, I would, I'd probably call it a wasted chance, I think, because he's mm. he's slipped in with such a like a perfectly weighted ball from Schneider that he's he's got the run on Puyo as it is. And he's, he's essentially he's one on one with Casillas with Puyo just breathing down his neck behind. And mm. I think you're right in that he could probably, a, a player of Robin's ability, could quite easily fake the shot, faint and go around the keeper. But instead he just sort of takes this right foot shot and it, I mean, he's a toe width away. Like I could see his toe width away from yeah. putting the Dutch 1-0 up. And at that point, the way the Dutch have been defending, you might have thought they might have been able to see it out. Yeah, and I think that this sort of close shave sort of springs the game into life a little bit because a few minutes later... um Navas has a, a cross into the box. John Heitinger blocks it. David Villa has an attempt. He's really, really close to to a, to a goal for for the Spanish there as well. Yeah, it's just like like you say. It just it must have just been like a, a rocket up the arse of the Spanish at that point. Mm. Like, oh, we could have gone one 0 down there. We've been so we played so well, and yet it's just one small lapse, small lapse of concentration. And they could have scored. And it's it, the the stream that um, that I watched was sort of an old DSPN one. That's I think the one I watched. Be, yeah, yeah. So the uh, Martin Tyler and Efna Koku on comms, and there's a 
pretty dark premonition just after that Robin chance where Ty- Martin Tyler says something along the lines of like, oh, if Spain go on to win this, I'm sure Arnie and Robin will have a few sleepless nights. And I've read sort of interviews with Robin afterwards that he's later admitted that he's he's still haunted by that miss. Wow. And shortly after the tournament, the team was sort of honoured by I think the president and the queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robin spoke on the day just saying, look, on a day like today, I think about that miss a lot. It hurts to miss such a chance. And he's just come at this point, he's just come off the back of losing the Champions League final that year yeah. to Inter mm-hmm. and Wesley Schneider. It must have been a pretty dark summer for him. Yeah, I think, you know, he he probably would have felt some sort of redemption if he, you know, had sort of, you know, scored that chance. And whether they went on to win or not is an, is another matter. But if he yeah. had put that chance away, you know, he's he done probably, his bit at least because yeah. he has the two he has the two best chances in the whole game for the Dutch because there's one oh, that yeah. one on sixty minutes and then I've sort of got a note here but on eighty two which I mean yeah. skipping ahead so we'll go back in a minute but Robinson he kind of gets the run on Puyol again who he kind of I think Puyol kind of trips and then falls into the back of Robin's legs who to his credit manages to stay on his feet but if Robin goes down there in the box I think Puyol's gone mm. He's and, there, and then you've got the Spanish down to 10 with you know about 8 minutes left so could have all turned on its head there as well yeah on the 84th minute so after after that that second Robin chance where sort of Casilla picks the ball up from his feet um, Robin gets a yellow card on 84 minutes so because oh, he's yeah. just berating Howard Webb, isn't he? Goes, yeah, he, he just runs after him, screams in his face. Him. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know you can sense his frustration as well. And Howard Webb doesn't really have much of a choice; he just has to go. I'm, look, sorry, mate. If you keep talking, I, I, you're leaving with my, me with no choice. Yeah, well, exactly, and and he does exactly that. He just mm. sort of books him, and you know, I think I do really feel for Iron Robin at that point. <laughs> he's had yeah. not the best game of his career. He's had two great chances, and he's been kicked out of the game for a lot of it. So, yeah, um, Spain make a change right towards the end of the game. They bring on Cesc Fabregas for Xabi Alonso. What a sub to have on the bench as well. Someone that would crack any starting eleven of any international side, and he's just sat on yeah. the bench at the moment. I mean, yeah. I mean, they've the, the squad that they've got in in total is, is pretty good. I mean, you know, you've got younger players like Pedro who's starting. You know, being able to bring on Navas, being able to bring on Fabregas, and in extra time, being able to bring on Torres as well. I mean, that, that's that is some Arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse the pun. Excuse the pun. Well, with, with that. that, I mean, I mean, Fabregas when he he comes on with five minutes to go, and I think that that's that's basically with that substitution he kind of signals the end of his Arsenal career because he comes on he assists he assists the winner and then at the victory parade he's got is it I think it's Reina, PK and Puyol they all I don't know why Reina's doing it he's got nothing to do with Barcelona but they're, no, they're the ones that just a banter merchant isn't he yeah he's just a cheerleader he, they, they drape the Barca shirt over him and spray him with champagne and it's that image yeah. that is kind of that's the thing that I think that's, that's makes every that, Arsenal fan sick to their stomach knowing that their captain's the thing, about to be poached. Yeah, that's the thing that pisses off uh, even Gazidis the most. Um, and, and Arsene Wenger, because obviously Wenger's doing commentary for French national TV, oh. seeing this happening and then is being asked about it. And that's a really, really awkward um, you know, position for him to be in to sort of know that this is going on to your captain yeah. uh, in front of... You know, I think it's like 910, audience, yeah. 910 million people watching it. Um, so a little bit awkward. But the game finishes nil-nil and we go to extra time. So there's two major incidents that happen in 
extra time. One of them is John Heitinger finally getting sent off for a second yellow. We actually finally see a Dutch player get sent off. Over 100 minutes, but yeah, we finally see the Dutch Mm. down to 10. (laughs) And um, then in the, was it, 116th minute, we get a goal. So talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so it's not, I think the, the Iniesta winning goal is like, it's kind of not the it's not the best initial ball from Torres because by this point Fernando Torres is taking the field and he is nowhere near the same player that he was two years ago. I think he's mm. it it comes to pass that he's really suffering from hamstring trouble at this point and his his first touch is way off. He is he's just not up with the speed of the game and so he tries to put this ball in to Iniesta that's it's blocked. I think it's by Van der Vaart, but he kind of he's contorted his body in a way that he's able to clear the ball, but it just falls to Fabregas puts the ball through to Iniesta and then he just makes like no mistake. Um, that makes it 1-0. Um, <laughs> Iniesta runs off to the corner flag followed by what looks like 300 Spanish substitutes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that after he scores the goal, he doesn't he has a, he's got like a t-shirt with with something underneath. It's got a message. Yeah, for, so this um, is, this is for, it's for Danny. Is it Harke? Danny Harke, yeah. Um, who's a central defender. Um, but he was a hmm. a young footballing friend of Andres Iniesta. Um, died at the age of 26, sort of the summer before the World Cup final. So I think that was just a nice kind of, I'm still thinking of you, mate. <laughs> kind of, it was a really nice touch for to, to win the World Cup yeah. with with a strike like that and then to rip the t-shirt, yeah, like, rip, rip yeah. the shirt off and to ha- just have a message for a fallen friend underneath. I just think it was a really nice touch. Yeah, it was, he was 26 years old and died of a heart attack. Um, I mean, it's awful thing to happen and it's something obviously that we're seeing more and more in in you know in, in professional football as it gets so much more intense you know the the pressures that are being put being put on the body yeah yeah it's incredible um but a, a really really nice touching tribute to to his friend there and you know um and that image is going to live long sort of into the mm-hmm. memory as well that that image of sort of in the Esther with his shirt off in his hand with that message on his t-shirt that sort of yeah. name will always be around yeah, that was the thing that he wanted people to see. He yeah. didn't want people to see the Spain shirt. He wanted people to see the message. It's just synonymous though with that World Cup win now. Mm. I mean, I think also to do with the goal, you've got straight afterwards, I think the Dutch are sort of appealing for a foul up the other end of the pitch with uh, Elia, I think it was. Mm. So he's. Uh, they think that he's been fouled on the Spanish 18-yard box, the Spanish break, and that ends up with them going 1-0 up. But at that point I think they're just clutching at straws it would just look like yeah. really tired and terrible defending by that point and sort of Van der Vaart's the one that tries to get a leg in on Iniesta's strike but just can't reach it Yeah. and yeah you see I think it's Matthijsson afterwards berating both the linesman and Howard Webb and he's booked I think as well um, and he's furious he throws the ball away and all sorts but they've got four minutes to kind of sort themselves out and try and find an equaliser which obviously they can't <laughs> which is a shame yeah I mean, it's it's crazy when you see like the actual number of bookings that happen just in extra time. I mean, Van der Veel gets booked on 111 minutes, Matthiasen on 117, Heitinger on 109, uh, Xavi on 120 plus one. <laughs> <laughs> Is that for time? I imagine that's for time <sighs> wasting. Must be, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and Iniesta obviously for for taking his shirt off. Um, uh, on uh, that's 118 minutes that that booking is recorded at. It's just a it's just a really dirty fight. I think if you were to th- try and imagine like the dream World Cup final, you probably come up with mm. like the total football style of the Dutch, 
and then the tiki taka style of the, the spanish and that's like two yeah. quite contrasting styles but very iconic and that's probably what you'd say would be the dream world cup final but we yeah. we didn't get that at all it was essentially like an abomination of a final and even though mm-hmm. i wanted to dutch the, to win you kind of have to admit that the right team did win in the end yeah no i yeah completely agree i think that over the course of the tournament and certainly over the course of the game the the spanish deserved it more um but it was it, it was close um but yeah equally like you say not a great final at all it's the most bookings ever in a world cup final more than doubling the previous record that's it so <laughs> the record was argentina against west germany in 1986 and there were six cards in the whole game and there was double that <laughs> wow so howard webb was busy then yeah um but you know spain win the world cup um they get there in the end um everyone goes up cheers everyone uh drinks a whole bunch of champagne and Ica Casillas raises the world cup and lifts Spain the weight of a nation off his shoulders yeah yeah so, like, it must be such a huge sigh of relief to finally just kind of to get there and mm. to say that you've done it after you know they've been through time and time again of just sort of crashing at the, the quarterfinals and stuff so yeah I think it was interesting um looking at comments in the aftermath of all of it yeah. from Johan, Johan Cruyff and also from Howard Webb. So Johan Cruyff said the day after the final, um, so he criticized the team uh, in a Catalonia newspaper saying that they played in a very dirty fashion, describing their contribution to the final was ugly, vulgar and anti-football. <laughs> he said that the Dutch should have had two players sent off early in the match, which we said and, and, and agreed with. Yeah. And he criticized Howard Webb for failing to dismiss them. Yeah, you can't argue with that at all. Yeah, yeah. I think it must be really difficult for someone like him who is like such an architect of the, the national style yeah. to, to witness this and go, what are you doing? I taught you better than that. Yeah, well, no, exactly. And then, yeah, he's having to watch his, especially to lose in that fashion as well. I imagine it might be a little bit easier to swallow if they walk out holding the gold at the end, but yeah, they've lost in such an ugly and disappointing fashion. It must just be really hard to swallow that way. Yeah. And Howard Webb mentioned on the De Jong incident, you know, after the game, he said, having seen the challenge again from my armchair, I would red card him. The trouble in the actual game was that I had a poor view of that particular incident. No, he's, he's blaming his eyeline there, is he? Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a little bit of a cop I mean, out. Yeah. At least he's, at least he's recognised his mistake because I think it might, it might have been even more difficult or hard yeah. like for him to turn around and say afterwards, no, no, I stick by what I, th- I thought when it's a it's a clear red card really early on in yeah. the game as well but if that you know who knows if john gets red in the first half an hour it might have been an even worse game <laughs> well you, we'll you never imagine know. as well if if var was a thing and we said this last last week as well um if var was a thing then you probably could have seen the dutch gone down to nine or maybe even eight yeah an abandoned world cup final i wonder what that would have looked like <laughs> yeah dread to think but yeah. you, know, you never know what might happen in the next world cup so yeah well it was an interesting game to rewatch anyway even if it was just for sort of to realign what i thought happened with actually what did happen so yeah yeah the the rose tinted mm. spectacles have been taken off and smashed to pieces yeah i think the storylines <laughs> behind the game and around the game are better than the game itself which is that's kind of what we're after anyway yeah i mean it was really interesting for me watching all the highlights of the the, the Dutch side leading up to the final because Schneider was just absolutely incredible for that whole tournament. And 
you know, the thing that the Spain team did super, super well in this final was shut out Robin and limit what Schneider yeah, could do. Yeah, kept him his, quite his ability, quiet, didn't Yeah, his ability to dictate the play was, was, you know, really sort of taken away from him. And you can see Iron Robin getting increasingly frustrated on the wing and Wesley Schneider having the ball taken away from him or being tackled and not knowing sort of what he can do. Um, yes, yeah, understandably frustrating, but a, a good sort of bit of tactical play by the Spanish as well. Yeah, technically they've got their game plan spot on from yeah. from minute one, really. Cool. So that's it. That's uh, episode two: Spain versus the Netherlands, the 2010 World Cup final. Um, up next, we are going back in time to the early 70s, and we're going to be looking at one particular nation's first and only ever appearance at a World Cup. So tune in to listen to that. Should be interesting. Stay tuned. Thank you very much, Liam. Yeah, not a problem, Chris. Thank you very much. And we will speak to you all soon. Goodbye. Speak to you soon. Africa. I will have a 